Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the AV Forums Movies Podcast. Coming up, we go to the cinema with Chris to look at The Grey, we review Repo Man and The Rocketeer on Blu-ray, and Pixar's up on 3D Blu-ray, plus we also look at this year's Oscar nominations. So joining me on the Movies Podcast this month, we've got Chris, Mark, Simon and Steve. Good evening, guys. Hello. Hello. So we're going we're gonna to kick off with a movie review from the cinema. We haven't done this in quite some time on the podcast, uh, but... Chris assures me that this film is well worth talking about for 15 minutes, uh, so we're going to give him five. Chris, uh, The Grey, tell us all about it. Oh, The Grey, yes, yes, awesome movie. Um, a lot of people have seen the trailers for this now, and I want to tell people straight away that you should pretty much discard what you're seeing in those trailers, because it kind of paints the, the image of this being an all-action, all-rugged, all-adventure, macho, heroic sort of movie. It isn't. It has elements of all those bits in there, but it's also a very serious, very brooding, very melancholic um, anthem to, well, death, and rather how we face imminent death. Does that sound very um, exciting and happy-go-lucky to you? No, uh, because the film isn't like that. But the film is a, a magisterial piece of work, I've got to say. I've been looking forward to it, and I kind of had some reservations because Joe Carnahan, the director um, and the writer, he, I, I love his, his movie Narc, I thought it was an absolute classic, um, but his later subsequent movies, like Smoke and Aces, I thought was a bit self-indulgent and a bit wallowing and too much style over content. Uh, and the A-Team adaptation, I thought was pretty poor. So, you know, I was kind of hoping for the best, but also possibly waiting for the worst to happen. And I, all my hopes, uh, you know, were met because the film is a fantastic piece of work. Basically, Liam Neeson plays a guy called John Otway, uh, who is a, a trained sniper. His job is to protect the, um, the ice jocks who work on the oil rigs really you know, deep into Alaska. He keeps the wolves at bay, literally. And, uh, you know, he's just obviously a tragic past to this guy. There's something haunting this fella. We see flashbacks to a loving, doting wife and, you know, nice cozy moments that they've had. But this guy's not very happy with his lot at the moment. He's a bit of a miserable sod. So, end of their tour, he and a bunch of these, uh, these hard asses get on the plane to go back home with some well-earned R&R. Sadly, fate's got another you know, um, option for them. And that is where it sends the plane crashing out of the sky. It crashes into the snow and ice thousands of miles from you know, shelter, safety, and civilization. Only a handful of people survive. And uh, luckily for them, John Otway is one of them. Now, this guy is obviously a bit of an outdoors when he knows a thing or two. He becomes a natural leader. Uh, he tries to band these people together and uh, lead them, well, to safety, if it's at all possible to do so, knowing that no planes are going to come anywhere near them uh, before they freeze to death. And uh, sadly, you know, they might be thousands of miles from civilization, but they're right next door to a pack of extremely ferocious 
monstrous, nightmarish wolves uh, who don't want them around, and then spend the rest of the movie pursuing them step for step across the wilderness and uh, taking them down one by one. Uh, so you're talking part adventure, part horror movie, part existential anthem to you know mortality. That's what the film is. There is plenty of action. Let me assure you, there is plenty of action. But in between the action and the uh, the wolf attacks, um, there's a lot of very intense, brooding, soul-searching um, analysis of the individual characters uh, who survive. You know, well, the initial crash anyway. And uh, Neeson uh, gives a towering performance. A lot's been said about it that it could be the performance of a lifetime. Um, and I, you know, I, I can't possibly argue with that. He, he owns the movie. You can't take your eyes off him. He is absolutely magnetic in it. Um, of course, we all know about his, uh, his recent loss um, of his wife. So, you know, it's difficult to separate that from what you're seeing in the character, mainly because you, when this guy hurls grief and abuse at a completely impotent god in the sky, you're seeing what looks like the real rage and grief of, of Liam Neeson, the man. Um, and, you know, as awkward and as uncomfortable as that may be to sit and watch, you know, it's absolutely riveting. Um, you believe the character, you're compelled to, to sympathise with him. Alongside Neeson, who is a tour de force in this movie, you have a fellow called uh, Frank Grillo, who uh, last seen in, in Warrior, he was the uh, Joel Edgerton's fight trainer, and uh, a lovable, likeable, affable, charismatic guy he was in that. He so isn't in this, an argumentative, antagonistic, violent, volatile ex-con. Uh, <laughs> but you believe him. You believe him so much that you want to see him get torn limb from limb because he challenges authority, he challenges Neeson, who knows what's best for everybody. He's looking out for everyone. For God's sake, leave the guy alone, give him a break. But no, he won't do that. So, but the great thing is you're going to see this guy turn around. It's a cliche. You know, all these guys, how many films have we seen where it's a group ensemble and they've all got the individual characters, you know, and... They're thrust against the old, you know, ordeals, trials by fire, obstacles and hellish situations. And they come to terms with one another and who they are inside. Yeah, you've seen it a million times. Yes, this film will not deviate too much from that path. But what it does do, um, you really do genuinely care about these people. And it's not like, it's not uplifting. It's not like, oh, they become a better person and the world will be better now that they survive. Because this movie, and you know, I have no qualms about saying this, do not go into it expecting a happy ending. It isn't that kind of film. It's deliberately set up to be like that. You kind of know from frame one that this isn't going anywhere nice. Uh, and, you know, that may shatter some people's um, ideas of a good night out at the flicks. But, you know, the film is a, a terrific piece of work that gets inside you. It makes you question a lot of you know awkward things. It moves you in many many ways. It excites you. You know it's uh, it terrifies you. My God, you know the, you know I'm kind of sidetracking the wolves. The wolves. I love wolves, folks. I love wolves. And I, you know folklore has taught us that they're monsters to be feared. We all know the reality is a different thing. You know they're they're loving, sensitive family creatures. You know, uh, <laughs> except but this lot aren't doing their breed any favours because they're absolutely terrifying. There's many scenes of them where you don't even see these guys. And, and they, they are, when you do see them, a combination of CG, real-life wolf, and um, animatronics. And, and most of it's really good. Some of the CG shots do stick out like a sore thumb, but these things look so freakishly monstrous. Yeah, you, they look brilliant anyway. But there's loads of scenes where you don't see them. 
but you, boy, do you hear them. And you can forget all that, you know, the, just the, the basic Transylvanian, you know, children of the night and what sweet music they make. There's nothing lovely and lyrical about the howling here. Jesus, it scares the, you know, the you-know-what out of you. Um, you see, they're just behind the ridge, literally just a few feet away from these guys who are huddled by a campfire, terrified out of their wits, and, you know, the blood will freeze because the noises these things are making as they're mocking and taunting these survivors. Because that's what they're doing, folks. You know, it's, this is where it goes into the sort of horror movie fantasy element. And some people have said, you know, wolves don't act like that. Well, I think wolves do act like that. You know, if they're going to drive these intruders out of their territory, they're going to they're do everything that their instincts tell them to do. Um, and if you are happen to be the human caught up in that situation, how are you going to view these things? Except as absolute monsters, because that's what they are. And as I say, they're absolutely terrifying. Um, so the film definitely tries to put you in that situation. And aiding this is this phenomenal sound design. Um, there is incessant wind howling throughout this uh, this movie, and that wasn't just me being terrified of it. You know, this is genuine. You know, Arctic winds blowing across the air. Um, you know, the screen, but you're feeling it so well. It's, it's actually moving you across the seat. You're huddling into your chair even more because it's freezing. You can feel the cold. It's a hyper, hyper real movie in terms of its uh, its environmental, um, you know, dynamics. But you know, it's a uh, it's also a very deep and upsetting and melancholy film as well. It has many quiet moments of introspection um, and you know, just basic human despair and uh, and rage. Uh, you know what fate does to you. But I loved every minute of it, and I didn't want it to end. So what's the cinematography like? Because, I mean, obviously, you know, I haven't seen the film, but I would imagine it lends itself to some pretty spectacular uh, cinematography. Yeah, uh, the photography is phenomenal. Uh, it's by a guy whose name I've actually forgotten, and I think if I remembered it, I couldn't pronounce it anyway. He's the uh, the Japanese fella who did Warrior. Uh, and, yeah, obviously, it's one of those films where you think, it doesn't matter where you put that camera, you point it that way, that way, or that way, it's going to look absolutely beautiful. Thing is, a lot of this is set in, in unstoppable blizzards, so the film is harrowing to look at in many respects because you know, you're kind of sheltering from this as well. You're not seeing majestic ravines and fantastic uh, mountainscapes. You do see them in a few brief shots, but mainly this is snow and ice, and then very dark woodland areas. Um, but you know, it does look totally realistic, authentic. It puts you there, and you know. You're in that environment. Yeah, photography is great, but it's you're not going to go, ooh, that's a lovely looking place. I can't wait to go there because it doesn't look like that. It looks absolutely hellish. And and how's it cut together? I mean, is it uh, MTV jump style cuts or, or is it a nice pace to the edit? You have moments of shaky cam, um, but it's not, it is no way. We're not talking Jason Bourne here. Uh, we're not talking MTV at all. There's moments of shaky cam involved in some of the attacks, uh, and because you know they're in this one particular attack, you know it, it comes out of nowhere. So you know you're seeing it as these guys see it as they try to run frantically back to try and save somebody. So it's all over the show, um, but most of the, most of the action is you know it's pretty much a static camera, um, and you see what's happening. So there's great there is great camera work. It's it's kinetic. The editing is is beautiful. Uh, most of the movie. Most of the movie is actually quite languid thinking about it now because you, you've got a lot of static scenes where it's just a group of people around, around a campfire or huddling against these you know, terrible, terrible um, Arctic winds. 
and it, and Neeson, Neeson's face commands most of the frame, you know, in, in most of these sequences. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, you, you're not going to have, you know, um, a headache or nausea from watching this movie, but you might have hypothermia and a, a severe fear of wolves. It's all, the film is about that, that hinterland, that twilight zone between life and death. Basically, these guys, these survivors of the crash are all in the dead zone. They're alive now, but death is only literally, you know, a, a frozen breath away. So it's, it's a deeper film than you think. You know, it isn't just an action adventure. It's a damn sight more than that. And that's what makes the film so special. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's piqued my interest anyway. So uh, I shall uh, probably wait on the Blu-ray. I'm not one for going to the cinema. But thanks very much for that, Chris. That's the great. It's out of cinemas now. Uh, we're going to move on. We're going to move to Mark. And Mark's going to look at a film from 1984, uh, out now on Eureka Blu-ray and uh, Certificate 18. And it's Repo Man. Tell us all about it, Mark. Yep, um, Masters of Cinema series are, are bringing this to Blu-ray for the 20th of February. It's Alex Cox's debut feature. It's um, very much a film of its time. It, it, it fits in nicely with that kind of uh, Cold War, Reagan era, kind of mad sci-fi genre that seemed to come out. Um, very much lo-fi, very much small budget, um, cobbled together with... Um, favors pulled together um it's it's very much a cult film it's very much um you have to be in the right mood to 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 watch it but it's it's very cutting it's very um satirical in in a way that perhaps the initial atmosphere you wouldn't necessarily associate with it um about basically a disaffected young californian white youth uh otto played by emilio estevez uh loses his job at a at a supermarket and ends up falling in with repo men, men who who legally steal back cars that people haven't kept up the payments on. Um, it, it's a bit of a social commentary in some ways about commercialism and the, and about the way in which uh, kind of American society was going in in the Reagan era and the like. But it's also got this this wonderful kind of Lynchian undercurrent um, of mad conspiracies and just overall paranoia of of the kind of atomic age and it it, it goes into into sci-fi but it, it's it's one of those films where you have to keep watching there are lots of little little asides little things that you think are a throwaway kind of oddball lines and, and madness and the like but it, it all kind of pulls together in in what's called this lattice of coincidence um i i absolutely love the film um Partly because I, I love the soundtrack. Um, it's it's got a lot of um, classic American punk on there, Black Flag and Iggy Pop. Um, and as I say, it's it's um, a bit of an acquired taste. Um, you'll see some of the effects are, are, are obviously poor, but they're they're supposed to be, and it becomes that that becomes part of the the fabric of this dark humor. Everything's mad. Everything's oddball. You know, you've got. Um, there's a, a Chevy Malibu that everyone's chasing. It's kind of you know catch the pigeon style. Um, everyone's going after this car. It's it's um, being chased by the repo men, by these Hispanic um, rival repo men, the Rodriguez brothers. There are secret government agents all looking vaguely Aryan, and a woman with a metal hand going after it. It's it's got lots of madness, um, lots of quite smart observations as well, and. It's brought to Blu-ray in a, in a very smart style. 
1080p ABC codec um, presented in 1.85 to 1. Uh, they've clearly put some work in. Print damage has been minimised. It, it looks it looks brighter, it looks clearer, it looks fresher than it has done. Um, but they've retained a you know a good contrast in there that comes across in the the opening title sequence, the 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 black against the green of the map and and the, and the red punch of the the titles themselves. It's you know it's it's low budget. It was it was an eighties film kind of thrown together, so it. It was never going to look startlingly great. It was never going to look mind-meltingly beautiful on Blu-ray. But there is that extra level of detail there, and and the depth that's been brought out is is something that will possibly surprise some. The the detail goes throughout the frame, and it, and it's somehow it has just that little bit more of a pop to it than it's previously had. Um, the sound uh, DTS HD Master Audio 2.0. They've they've given us the monaural track there and also a separate track with just the music and effects for pretty much for purists only um sound isn't it's it's hard to judge really sometimes uh it, it was never going to be the the widest most dynamic track um some of the music does you really want there to be a, a bit more bass in there you you really want it to be a, have a bit more pop there um but overall, you can't really complain about that. And then when you move on to the extras that they've given us, which, you know, you've got interviews, you've got um, the deleted scenes, you've got, you know, they even talked to the, the inventor of the neutron bomb about some of the science, science and, and also about morality and, and the like. But um, it's, it's got the TV edit, which has never been uh, on a home format before, where they, you know, several scenes cut and a few scenes popped in and, and they had to redub for... Um, Basically for network TV, so overdub for um, some of the profanities and the like. Um, Standard Masters of Cinema, they're throwing the the a big booklet in there as well about lots of uh, things to do with the film and um, the interview with Harry Dean Stanton, entitled Harry Zen Stanton, is particularly noteworthy simply because he's, you know, he's this aging actor with with a, a certain amount he's always had this gravitas and, and a certain amount of charisma and you just think sometimes those kind of actors won't be the same when interviewed um but he seems just as far out as the film itself yeah as a package it's it's very hard to fault if you're a fan of the film then then i definitely pick it up if you're not but you seem intrigued by it and, and you like that kind of off the wall kind of zany um conspiracy theory paranoia type comedy with action in there um then it's definitely definitely worth a look i haven't seen this film for years and years and years first time i remember seeing it was on um alex cox he used to um have a movie Movie drone that's it it was movie drone bbc2 wasn't it very late sunday evenings and he, and he introduced his own film when that was the first yeah, time he presented it. his and, own film yeah he presented his own <laughs> film along with other ones of course um but uh i just remember sitting there looking at him, what the hell is this all about i don't think i was quite old enough to to really understand what was going on it just seemed completely out there that that car with the, yeah, the thing in the boot you're not old enough now <laughs> why thank you chris <laughs> yeah on their dead ears in the boot of that car I yeah. haven't seen this film in twenty odd years, but I think that's yeah. That's that's one of the dead film. aliens yes. in the boot of a car. Something a mad, yeah. a mad scientist is driving it away. He's stolen it from a government facility. Everyone's going after it, and it's it's giving off radiation. And uh, 
it's got this the classic kind of hammy cartoon style um vaporization of anyone who opens the boot and it, it's it's the great kind of uh in a way the great MacGuffin, you know, you never really see it. You you you're shown one little Polaroid which was apparently mocked up just with a bunch of uh condoms shot in black and white with some little grass skirts around them. Um <laughs> it it is as budget as it sounds, but it's it's got some great characters in there. I mean, the repo men themselves, they're all named after, you know, beers and the like, which is another little nod to commercialism. Um you've got characters like Light who who would, you know, very much one of the cool characters in in 80s cinema and and I, I defy anyone to to watch him and not think that you know Sam Jackson when getting ready for pulp fiction couldn't have learnt a thing or two there um yeah great characters and, and it's it's one of those films that everyone seems to remember no one really says ah oh, that they've seen it recently but surprisingly it it actually has aged quite well it's it's taken on that that kind of new level of cultdom where you can appreciate everything that was put in there, whereas once you might have seen, you know, things as slightly naff or not understood, you know, why all the products just have plain blank labels on them with just saying beer or, you know, potato chips or whatever. But now it seems to to take on a bit more of a context. Actually, thinking about it, now you mention it, the aliens in the boot is not dissimilar to the glowing briefcase in Pulp Fiction as well, isn't it? That no, kind of strange or- MacGuffin where you don't quite know what's in them. We know no, find out what's in the briefcase, do you? Yeah, it's the same as the the box in, you know, kind of uh Kiss Me Deadly. You know, it's it's that kind of classic thing, you open it, but it'll burn you, you're never sure what it is, everyone's going after it. And as I say, it, it ends when you think that it's gone into a mad place, when you think that, you know, kind of even David Lynch would be saying, you know, steady on lads. Um, it just heads off into the stratosphere in complete insanity. But it's 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 infectious. It, it's got this great, really dark sense of humour running through it, and just a, an overall sense of slightly anarchy, hopelessness, but also poking fun at everything that it's that it's supposed to be about. You know, even you know people highlight it as a punk film, but it, it's in fact poking fun at those kind of kids who who saw themselves as anarchic, who saw themselves as kind of in any way revolutionary, or, or that that somehow this teen angst this anger at the world was in in any way original you know and and so it's yeah it's got all the kind of different layers from otto to to bud played by harry dean stanton of kind of disaffected lives of of people all trying to live by their own code but ultimately none of it really matters you know it's it's a completely kind of nihilistic and anarchistic film that doesn't really have any great message, but seems to actually say a lot. Uh, There's no wolves in it, though, is there? <laughs> no, I actually no, saw it at, at the cinema back in 84 when it came out, and I haven't seen it, only seen it once since, and that was the TV edit that you're talking about that's on the disc as well. I remember it was absolutely hysterical because they uh, kept changing a certain swear word uh, with the word melon farmer, <laughs> and it's used quite yeah. a lot. <laughs> it was just constantly, know, it was a melon farmer. Mother funster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's uh, Repo Man. Thanks very much for that, Mark. We're going to move on to 1991 and an absolute flop of a movie. It did nothing when it came out, but Steve says we should all watch it again. Uh, the Rocketeer on Blu-ray. Steve, tell us all about it. Yeah, you're right, Phil. It did. It, it, it bombed in 91. It was a big budget release back then. It was produced by Disney. It was directed by Joe Johnston, who had previously made uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and it came from ILM originally, so he'd done work on Star Wars, Raiders, stuff like that. And, and yeah, it bombed, um, much to everyone's surprise at the time. 
and much to my surprise, because I saw it at the cinema in 91 and absolutely loved it and could understand why no one else was going to see it. Uh, it got a non-anamorphic DVD release in the late 90s and it had nothing since then. So this has been well overdue for a decent release. And thankfully, last year, uh, Disney uh, did a full restoration on the negative and they actually did a, a screening with the cast and crew, I think at the El Capitan in LA last year as well, which apparently was filmed. Um, and then finally, uh, at the end of last year, they uh, did a, a Blu-ray release. Now, the, the picture and sound are absolutely superb. As I said, they did a, a restoration. And um, and the picture quality for a film from 1991 is, is excellent. I mean, it's really, really nice to look at. You know, there's, it's a nice clean print, uh, plenty of fine detail. Um, the, the film grains where it should be. Uh, it looks beautiful. You know, the production design has got a lovely, uh, 19, set in the 1930s, and it has a lovely sort of pre-World War Hollywood look about it and an Art Deco look to it, which, which really comes through on the disc. The sound is excellent too. But the big disappointment is that you know, there's absolutely no extras apart from the trailer, which is in four to three and in pretty shoddy condition and in standard definition anyway. And that's the only extra on the disc, which is a real shame because I know they filmed the Q&A they did after the screening last year. So you're thinking, well, why didn't you just put that on at the very least? But you know, this film deserves a, you know, a, a, a retrospective documentary or a commentary track or something. But as I said, it bombed, and I guess Disney didn't want to put any money into something they think it figured wouldn't sell anyway. And, and the only reason I think it even got a release last year was because Joe Johnston directed um, Captain America, and clearly the two films are quite similar in many ways. They're both based on comic books. They're both sort of set well, certainly um, one set just before the war and one set during the war. They both involve Nazis and spies and and, and secret weapons, uh, and so there are lots of similarities. Although I think Rocketeer is a far superior film. You know, it's got a great cast. Timothy Dalton is absolutely brilliant. He's playing a character called Neville Sinclair, who's clearly based on Errol Flynn. Uh, and he's like a Nazi spy, uh, which Flynn was accused of being in, in, a, in, a, in a biography that was later um, was actually found to be false. But um, he, he obviously, he totally gets the film. And he's, uh, he's absolutely brilliant in it. You know, he's charming, he's funny, he's sinister, he's hamming it up a treat, uh, and he's superb. It's got uh, Bill Campbell, Billy Campbell plays... Uh, the Rocketeer, um, uh, Cliff Secord. Um, again, you know, very charismatic, nicely. I don't know what happened to his career. The guy was great in this, but obviously the failure of the film pretty much finished him off as an act, you know, in terms of his career. It's got Jennifer Connolly, 21-year-old Jennifer Connolly. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever looked more beautiful on film than she does in this. Absolutely stunning. Um, it's got uh, some great, great, great sort of um, supporting roles. In, in the actual original comic book, the guy who invents the rocket pack that they find is uh, Doc Savage, but because of copyright issues, they turned it into Howard Hughes in the movie. And actually it works much better because Howard Hughes was an engineer, he was a pilot, it really fits in with the story of the film. And there's some nice little, nice little jokes involving Howard Hughes, one involving the spruce goose actually, which is quite good. There's a fantastic joke involving the Hollywood land sign and what happened to the land bit on the Hollywood land sign, which is really funny. You know, it's, it's a brilliant movie, it's got great effects, even today the effects stand up because a lot of them were actually were, were practical, um, which was quite clever of Joe Johnson. Because uh, it means it hasn't aged really. I mean, there's a few, you know, there's obviously some optical effects in there, but um, it, it really has aged ex really well. And um, the production design, as I said, is, is absolutely superb. It's a really loving attention to detail in terms of 30s design. There's also some really nice little extra moments, like they, they've got a villain in it called Lothar, who's this, a lot of reviewers have criticised, you know, being unrealistic. But actually, he's based on a real guy called Rondo Hatton, who suffered from disease that, you know, made him very tall and very disfigured. And the guy had played like, you know, heavies in B-movies his entire career. And that's who Lothar's designed on it. And that's a nice little touch to people who know anything about sort of early 30s Hollywood B-movies. 
And overall, it's just a fantastic film. It's just, it's great fun. It's entertaining. You know, it's, it's everything that going to the movie should be about. And I still, to this day, never understood why it was a bomb. Um, but anyway, it's out on Blu-ray now. Uh, it looks and sounds great. Um, yes, there aren't any extras, which is a shame, but it still looks and sounds great. It's a fantastic film. And if, you, you know, if you're a fan, you've probably already got it. And if you're not, please go and buy it. It, it really is worth checking out. You won't regret it. You'll enjoy you know, two hours of fun and have a big smile on your face at the end of it. And, and that is not what movies are about at the end of the day. Probably use it as an antidote to having watched The Grey. <laughs> Before you slit your wrists after that one, put on The Rocketeer, go to bed happy. And think about Jennifer Connolly when you get there. Man, she's as hairy as a wolf, then. What are you talking <laughs> in the, about? In those Chris? early days, and I'm afraid Blu-ray is what is where you see it. And a lot, of, the eyebrows meet in the middle. She's got really hairy arms. I think it's a plague of dark-haired women, though, isn't it? Uh, yeah, she, I like she's aged a lot women. better. I know everyone adores her, but I always thought she's yeah, a bit hairy for me, girl. Um, but <laughs> she looks awesome. You love now, wolves, I, I do. Yeah, but I don't want to. I don't want to mate with them, though. <laughs> yeah, you reckon? You know, stroke them, yeah. <laughs> Look, now this 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 could deviate far too badly, so we better get back on track. Um, yeah, the Rocketeer is a great movie. I, I loved that at the time, and uh, couldn't believe why it bombed either. Um, that disc that's come out, it do, it does say on it somewhere um, one disc edition, doesn't it? Which kind of leads you to it's expect that disc twentieth anniversary edition, but. <laughs> That's it. I mean, maybe we'll get another. Maybe they're just testing the waters. If it sells well, so buy it, buy it, guys. If it sells well, they might bring out a special edition with, uh, you know, maybe documentary stuff like that. Um, or maybe Joe Johnston was too busy with Captain America at the time to really give it its full attention. There might be another edition later. I hope so. Yeah, I'd love to hopefully see, so. Yeah, I'd love to see a, you know a documentary and listen to a comedy track. But I mean, at least I've got it in high def now. I mean, after years of only having it on non-anamorphic DVD. I got it on high def, uh, and you know, and it was just as much fun as I remember it being, and I really enjoyed watching it again. Uh, so oh, it's, it's great, it's great, good fun, yeah. Uh, pure, you know, comic book style, um, you know, nineteen forty style. It's Indiana Jones. It's it's a lot of things all rolled into one. It's great, you know, good fun, high entertainment, and a great score from James Horner as well. Yeah, yeah, it's one of his best scores actually. I think I forgot to mention that. It's, yeah, a, fantastic it's, it's a good score. one. Yeah, I like it. He doesn't recycle too much great old material either for a change. Oh. <laughs> he is, he is <laughs> terrible. Let's not, let's, not, let's not get into that one. Oh, well, you know, if you're going to start debating that, look at John Williams as well. Yeah, no, he's the worst score offender. War Horse is, is, his scores in the last 10 years have been identical, except for War of the Worlds and Minority Report. The rest have all been pretty much the same. Oh, no. there was. I think, a, I think you know, the, Horner is certainly one of the worst when it comes to it. Uh, but you know, I happen to love <laughs> the themes that he did way back in the early 80s and the fact that he's regurgitating them over and over and over and over again. I actually don't mind. He did a film called Wolf and you know, that had wolves in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw your review of that soundtrack. Yeah, it's a bloody good, bloody good score, bloody good film. Why isn't that on Blu-ray yet? Why, why, why? Because it was rubbish, that's why. Oh, you are so lucky you're not in the same hemisphere as me. <laughs> <laughs> the wolf is awful. <laughs> Wolfman's a fantastic film. I can't, I can't believe you're actually saying that the to me. The reason why Michael Wadley hasn't made anything else is should bugger off back to making documentaries. Phil's going to stop us any second. But <laughs> yes, I win. Stop. Before we come to handbags at dawn, uh, just a quick wrap up on the disc. Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, it's um, ABC and Co. Two point three five to one. DTS HD Master Audio five point one soundtrack. Um, 
yeah, and it's a great, as I said, it's, it's a great looking and sounding disc. The fact they did a restoration really shows. You can see, you know, you can see it's a nice clean print and a really good transfer. Um, no extras, unfortunately, but still absolutely a fantastic film. And I recommend it highly, you know, a definite must buy for anyone who's either a fan of the film or wants to believe me and, you know, and go and check it out. It, it really is worth it. It's, it's pure escapism and fantastic entertainment. Okay, so we'll move on from The Rocketeer to film, which I can't believe came out in 2009. It seems a lot more recent than that, but Simon's going to tell us all about it. It was Pixar's 10th film, their 10th successive hit in a row, and it's Pixar's Up, but in three dimensions. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, I'm looking at the um, UK disc, which was released on the 9th of January, so um, a little over a couple of weeks ago. This is a three-disc edition. This has the uh, 3D Blu-ray, it's got a 2D Blu-ray, and it's got a special special features Blu-ray. From that, you can probably guess that the uh, although all Disney have done is repackaged what they've already released um, a year ago just by putting the 3D disc in it, which is great, which means that everyone has probably seen this disc, so we can talk about that in a little while. So I'll just go on and talk a little bit about the 3D part of the of the disc. This was uh, Disney's first 3D disc. Well, sorry, not Disney, Pixar's first 3D disc. Um, it's their first tentative step into... Um, Three dimensions, um, and that means whilst it is, um, it's okay, but it's not great. When you compare something like Cars Two or Toy Story Three, which are superlative, which are excellent three D representations, which you can really, really get into, up doesn't quite get there. That's not to say it isn't good. It is very, very good, but it just doesn't have that polish. It just doesn't have that depth. That 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 little spark that um, they, they got to with their, with their later films. However, it, it is still very good. You know, everything's still very, very round. The, the main character there, when, when you look at his face, you've got his nose and his glasses. His eyes are actually behind his glasses. Um, some of the best effects are when the, the house actually lifts up. Um, you, you see it sort of floating away from the ground, the, the camera's position looking from the ground, looking up. Um, when, when Russell and, and the guy um, are... are Pulling the house when they're at Paradise Falls, they're, they're in the front of the screen and the, the, the house goes far into the background. The balloons themselves look very, very round. There, there's a lot going on, which is very, very good. However, it's not consistent. There, there's many scenes which don't quite have that 3D depth when they're sitting around the campfire. The, the, the dog fight, when, when the, 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 the dogs are chasing the, the, the house in, in their little contraption things. You would think that would be great for 3D. It isn't really. It's really quite a, quite a flat scene. So the consistency isn't quite there. Um, the rest of the picture, however, is fantastic. You know, it's, it's uh, in the digital domain. It's, it's, it's clear. It's bright. Everything's really, really sharp and detailed. Colors are very, very bi- vibrant. Um, the balloons are all really, really strong and bold. Brightness and contrast are set very, very well. It's everything you expect from a Pixar film, um, with the added bonus of it being 3D. There's absolutely no crosstalk. I'm using um, uh, passive technology to view it. I saw no crosstalk whatsoever. But it did suffer a little bit from a few. There were a few jaggies here and there. Um, that's not not the film or the print. It's just the, the technology that I'm using to see it. But some of it was the worst I've ever seen. When you're looking up at the um, the cliff edge, well, what I could see using the, using the glasses was uh, some very very nasty jaggies. But they only lasted for a few seconds, so you know we, we won't dwell on that. Basically, it's it's pretty good 3D. Not the best, but pretty good. I think I scored that an eight. Moving on to the sound, fabulous, fabulous sound. You guys have all seen the disc, the two D disc. It's a it's a fabulous, fabulous sound. Extra wise, there's nothing new on this set. There's everything out there that has already been. That was, 
that's already been on there. The, the best things really are, are the are the two um, uh, extra extra five minute features. You know, the Doug special mission, which is a a short feature with the with the Doug the dog there, uh, partly cloudy, another little animated feature, and the rest are various making ofs that go. Um, on through it, fairly, fairly generic stuff that Pixar do very, very well. Overall, it's it's pretty good. Um, the the it, is it a benefit 3D? Yeah, on balance, I'd say I prefer to watch it in 3D than I do in T in and and 2D. And indeed, I've watched it a couple of times um, more, in fact, than I have um, on the 2D disc because and I've had that for over a year. But anyway, as to the film, well, I mean, you guys all know it. It's a Fabulous, fabulous film. The opening 10 minutes, that little, or oh, 11 minutes in fact, the opening 11 minutes is like a little segment all by itself when you go through the entire life story of, a, of our antagonist and our protagonist. It's just glorious. And that, they, they, it grabs you by the heart straight away when you realise what's happening to, to this, this poor couple, how it develops Ellie and uh, after Ellie dies, and how why why um, Carl doesn't want to leave. Simon, he's Simon. Yes, don't, don't give yes. any spoilers. Don't give any spoilers <laughs> from a four-year-old film. Are you sure? I don't think so. Everyone knows he goes up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then I'll leave it to you. Uh, yeah, I agree, Simon. It takes a lot of courage to have uh, a heart-rending sequence in the first ten minutes of a film. Um, you know, with, with the audience all blubbing their eyes out. Especially in an animated family movie like that. Yeah. Mm. However, I do think that the film's reputation is pretty much made by that first 10 minutes. And I don't want to sound controversial here, but I don't think the rest of it actually is as good. I think one of the big problems for me is that they get to Paradise Falls pretty much instantly. There's no sense of it being a real journey or a struggle. I mean, they just go up in the thing and then they're there. Uh, and then they're stuck in the same place for the rest of the movie, which again feels a bit... Uh, un, you know, unimaginative so so I, I do feel that to a certain extent that's, that's uh, pixar though pixar don't play by the rules they they, they bend the conventions yeah, all the time so if it doesn't work then there's no point doing it and so if, if you'd had an epic adventure of them trying to get to you know paradise falls you know that would have been the obvious route to have taken i mean obviously a lot of things could have happened to them I mean, in between but it, they just mess around with their, what you expect from going to south america is a fair old way from where he's starting from yeah, it probably would have been fun, but I, I still enjoy the way they've done it now. And I like the way that they, they do do things from a different viewpoint. They don't go the accepted route. Um, so all your adventure takes place once they get there. You've had a few ups and downs and comedy moments. And you've had, as we've all agreed, you know, that opening uh, montage is truly splendid cinema in its own right. And a, a, a lovely, heartwarming and heartbreaking little story. Uh, right then and there. He could get up and go after that bit and still feel completely satisfied and fulfilled by it. Uh, but no, you've got another whole adventure to go through with them. Um, uh, they're not wolves, are they? The dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the dogs are brilliant because they really nail dog mentality with those dogs, don't they? Yeah, squirrel! <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just met you, but I love you. You were all meant to do that. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a fabulous movie. Um, it's one... My kids didn't really uh, get it at first. And I think that's another part of the mystique and special kind of aura that Pixar have. Um, you know, some of the stuff like, like Wall-E, it's very adult, it's very mature in many ways, but it's beautiful to look at. So the kids sit there entranced, but they don't get it. They don't understand it. And then, like my little girl, when she first watched up, she, she said she'd like that movie. And she just nodded, but she said, do you want to watch it again? And she said, no. <laughs> 
I don't want to see it again. And yet the next day she was going over to the other pile of, you know, their Blu-rays and DVDs and she was seeking that one out. And, uh, and she's watched it numerous times since. I don't think she understands it even now, but, you know, that's, it's irrelevant. Um, they're still capt- captivated by it and carried along in a little story, uh, which does make them, in their, in their own little world, question things that they wouldn't normally do with the typical Disney fair, you know. So there's a lot that goes into, into Pixar movies, a lot that separates them from the, uh, the, the run-of-the-mill crowd of, uh, of animated you know, movies. I have I have got a question though, which is at the beginning of the film, the young Carl is watching uh, a newsreel at the cinema yes. with uh, the adventurer, and then he finds him at the end. How old is that guy supposed to yeah. be? Yeah, <laughs> that, that is that is something as well. He hasn't aged a great deal, has he? <laughs> well, he must be like a hundred, based upon the so. idea that Carl's in his seventies and Carl was that guy must have been in his thirties in the movie reel. So that makes him one hundred and ten actually. Well, my reckoning, Steve. It's an oh yeah, I know. But winning suspension disbelief is one thing, but they, it has to make sense. You're just you're what just, house? I know it involves a flying a house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but and dogs that can talk. But, but, but. actually, actually, the, um, the the flying house was on Discovery the other night, in uh, where they were challenged: can can we make a house fly with uh, balloons? And they did it. So yeah, they, it was some documentary, on, and it was something like an engineering challenge: can you do this? And they did it, and it looked like the the house from up. They, they were flying it with uh, balloons full of helium. Uh, Simon, you mentioned uh, in the extras that the shots are there. Now, are those 2D or 3D? No, they're 2D. Oh, that's um, a shame. I don't even know that they were... Yeah, I don't even know if they were rendered in 3D. There's, there's no extra content at all. No no 3D extra content whatsoever. It's basically just a film in 3D on a disc in the same package that has been released a year ago. Okay, well, that's uh, Pixar's up. It's now available in 3D. If you want to read any of the reviews uh, that we've mentioned this evening on the podcast, then head over to avforums.com forward slash movies and uh, take a pick and have a read at the uh, reviews there, uh, which go into a little bit more detail. Probably not on Chris's side, but a little bit more detail on others. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to wrap up uh, tonight's uh, movies podcast, it is Oscar season. Um, the nominations have been announced. Uh and Steve is going to tell us all about it. Obviously, on Tuesday, uh, this, Tuesday of the week, this is being recorded. Um, they were announced, um, and the top, the front runner in terms of nominations is Martin Scorsese's Hugo, uh, which is, of course, is his first foray into 3D. Um, and the, the other most nominated film, with I think one less than the Hugo, is The Artist. So the interesting thing at the moment is the two most popular, or at least. In terms of nominations, the most popular films are contending for uh, Best Picture and uh, Best Director. Are, one is a, a 3D movie, and the other one is a black-and-white silent film. So, so it's quite an interesting juxtaposition of, uh, of styles there um, for, for, for this year. Um, I think in terms, of, um, in terms of the actual nominations for Best Film, that they, they have a choice of between... They can do. They used to be five, and then they changed it to ten, and now this year it's, it can be anywhere between five and ten, uh, and they've nominated nine. Um, but most of them are the obvious examples. There's, there's Hugo, and, and, and obviously there's the the artist. There's the Descendants, which is the new film by Alexander Payne, which has got um, George Clooney in it. It's also nominated for Best Actor. There uh, is War Horse, of course, which is just pure Oscar. You know, typical Oscar movie, though. You, know, you can see that one getting lots of nominations. Surprisingly, uh, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close is nominated, which I think is universally regarded as being absolutely terrible. Um, and has a rotten rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but somehow managed to squeeze in with a nomination for Best Film, even though it, I don't think it's got any other nominations at all, uh, which is surprising. 
on the actor side of things, as I mentioned, is Clooney, there's Brad Pitt for Moneyball, which I've got to say, I saw Moneyball last week and I thought Brad Pitt was excellent in it. Uh, and for my money, he's probably one of the most underrated actors of his generation. Um, on the women's side of things, frontrunners definitely um, um, Meryl Streep for playing Thatcher. Uh, I haven't Ooh. seen the film. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, no, no, probably not so popular. <laughs> <Another here>. horse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not quite as pretty. <laughs> <laughs> on the directing side, uh, as I said, it's um, Mr. Scorsese as a frontrunner along with the French guy whose name I can't pronounce that directed the artist. I do think it is quite interesting. Uh, I mean, has anyone actually seen the artist yet? No. Or was going no. to, for that matter? No. No. Um, it's interesting. I wouldn't mind seeing it. Wouldn't mind yeah. seeing it. Do you know what? I, I feel I have seen it because they showed possibly the longest trailer I've ever seen. And that was before The Grey, and it was for The Artist. And by God, I felt I'd seen the movie. I love trailers. I love long trailers. But this was just basically, I, I can't think of what, what extra there could be in the full movie. Because the whole plot seems to be there, as far as I can tell. Crazy, crazy. I mean, that's typical modern trailers, isn't it? They always seem to give away the whole, whole bloody film before you've even seen it. It, it did look dazzling. I mean, I, I love silent movies anyway. I love the, the whole studio era. I love all of that sort of stuff. Um, well, when I first heard about this movie, I, I didn't have any interest in it at all. But I've heard you know, a lot of good things about it. And uh, the, the trailer does make it look you know, very dynamic and very engrossing. And a yeah. lot, of, you know, it's a lot of things. It's funny. It seems to be moving. It's got a lot of action to it. You know, slapstick style action, and uh, the songs and dances in there. Uh, although you probably can't hear. <laughs> but it's it does seem to have a lot of things going for it. But I think you must have some sort of uh, interest in you know in that era and that that style. You know, to really you know understand where they're going with this. I think it's an interesting experiment, the idea of, you know, making a silent movie in 2012. Because um, I mean, ultimately, film is a, is a visual medium, so why not? I yeah. mean, you, images are what it's all about. You don't need dialogue, or sorry, spoken dialogue, in order to tell a story. You need dialogue at all to tell a story no, if you're doing it well. No, exactly. So that's interesting. But what's also interesting is, obviously, as you just mentioned, Chris, it's, it's set in the 1920s, just if, as as talkies come in. That's what it's mm. plots about. Um, and which, I guess, is quite similar to... Um, um, Singing, singing in the rain which of course has got a similar story um and and so it's about the early days of cinema basically and so is hugo hugo uh, is set in uh, paris it, it involves george melier who's an early pioneer of, of french cinema and cinema worldwide and obviously he, he made a voice to the moon among others uh which was stolen by edison and were playing in the states before melier had even launched him released them in, the, in france uh, and he was destroyed in the end and, and ended up and, and quite in, in reality ended up working um in a shop at the uh, i think it was garden nord or godly on one or the other which is what hugo's about the kids at the station and he meets george melier there um so so both films have similar kind of themes of the early days of cinema and one uses perhaps the earliest form of cinema in silent black and white four to three ratio and the other film uses the most modern up-to-date techniques which is you know which is um 3d so an interesting juxtaposition, and I'll be curious to see which one comes out on top. Will, will, will the Academy go for uh, you know, the artist because it's quite unusual and it's also being pushed by the Weinsteins who are very, very good at lobbying movies um, during the Oscar season? Or will it, will it go for Scorsese and the sympathy vote? You know, well, not sympathy exactly, but you know, kind of the fact that Scorsese you know, has made so many great films in the past and often has been neglected by the, by the Academy. I know, I know he won for, for uh, The Departed 
not so long ago, but you know, he didn't win for Raging Ball and he didn't win for Taxi Driver and he didn't win for Good Goodfellas. Um, but well, but it, it does make it was the Paul Newman Award, though, wasn't it? Yeah, for Color of Money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Like, you've been around so long, we've nominated so many times. We just have to give we, you. We haven't appreciated you enough. And we know you deserve it, so here you go. This film isn't particularly well, worthy of your name, but you know because the, the, the Departed I thought was was pretty poor, especially compared uh, well, I to think it. Infernal Affairs was a lot better, infinitely better film, and yeah. even on its own, its own right, the Departed was just it's oh hello, it's the uh, oh, what's his name? <laughs> oh, God, I forgot the guy's name. He was the Joker in Batman. What's his bloody Jack name? Nicholson. That's the no, guy. Ledger. It, it, it's the Jack Nicholson show. <laughs> it's just. Terrible. Uh, um, actually, speak, speaking of the Paul Newman Award for being alive long enough to get an Oscar, that will go to Christopher Plummer for Beginners. I suspect a best supporting actor. Um, maybe he's very good in it, but you know he's just been around so long that he's bound to win that. Who else is up for that? Uh, best supporting Nick actor. Nick Nolte for Warrior. Warrior, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Max von Sydow. Wow. Kenneth Branagh. My week with Marilyn. I've never seen it, so don't. I have seen my week with Marilyn. Seen Moneyball. Actually... I haven't seen Beginners, and I haven't seen Extremely Loud, Incredibly Close either. I've only seen Warrior. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's Oscar season. Obviously, uh, you know we, we've covered the main awards there. I've got to say, I have no interest in Oscars whatsoever. Um, a few years back, well, maybe five, ten years ago, I had had a bit of interest about it, but it, it seems to have gone along the lines of um, a lot of the a lot of the same award shows nowadays. Um, they've changed the rules so many times in the last few years. It's confusing now as to what gets nominated, what can't get nominated, how many films is going to be in for best film and that kind of thing. Then the makeup categories, if there's a particular film they like um, and it doesn't affect, they'll make up a category, that type of thing. I think it's lost a lot of its mystique. I think it's lost a lot of its um, um, impartiality and, 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 well, you guys are saying, well, so-and-so's going to win this and so-and-so's going to win that. And you're probably right because it seems to be that... Um, uh, it's past its sell-by date now. It's 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 a way of Hollywood slapping each other on the back. Whereas if you look at something like the uh, the Golden Globes, which we watched when we were out in the states, Steve, um, far better show, far better award show. Um, lots of comedy in there, and and lots of ripping into into these Hollywood types who don't normally like getting it ripped. Yeah, courtesy of Ricky Gervais, who I have to say was on, was on very good form in that show. Although I think a little subdued after probably last year when he was really quite outrageous and got a lot of stick for it but yeah you're right Phil it was very it was very reverent um which I think is quite a nice touch same with the BAFTAs the BAFTAs used to be uh there used to be a dinner so they'd, they'd be absolutely hammered by the time they got to the award season the actual award giving and people used to be going up completely smashed to get their awards that was great fun in the old days but now it's it's a bit like the bit like the Oscars. Everyone sits there in a in a in a in an arena, you know, in a theatre, and so there's none of the boozing and, and eating beforehand, which is a shame because I quite missed that. Whereas I think at the uh, Golden Globes they do still do the the dinner and the drinking, which I think makes people a bit more loose lip loose loose lipped when they get up to the stage. Um, interestingly, you mentioned that made up of, well, new awards, if you like, or different categories. They they've added uh, in a few years ago. They added best animated feature, uh, and interestingly, this year, uh, surprisingly, Tintin. Spielberg's um, 3D CG animated movie uh, didn't get nominated uh, for best animated feature, but they did nominate Ranga, which is good because Ranga was absolutely superb and definitely, hopefully, will win. Because um, it was a real. If you haven't seen it, I'd, I'd highly recommend Ranga. I think it's it's brilliant. It looks absolutely spectacular, and it's also really funny um, and well worth well worth checking out. 
It's also um, animated by ILM. It was their first animated feature after the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, and they did a superb job in them. The animation really is absolutely beautiful. So my, my fingers are crossed that Rango that, picks that's, it up. That's, that's a bit ironic, isn't it, that you know, <laughs> Lucas sold Pixar <laughs> so many years ago because he saw no future in making animated movies and now ILM are making animated movies. Well, actually, I don't think Cars 2... I can't remember if Cars 2 is even nominated, which would be interesting, because normally well, Pixar win that award. And uh, There isn't a, uh, a Pixar film, in there? There's yeah. Dream, DreamWorks, Kung Fu Panda 2, if yeah, you can Kung believe Fu that. Yeah, Kung Fu Panda 2, yeah, and there's Rango, and I can't remember which other one's nominated, but it's interesting that Pixar aren't, because they're almost always... A, a they're always nominated, and B, they usually win it. Um, and that tells you a lot about Cars 2 and how poor that film actually mm. was. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. It is, it is self-congratulatory. It is back-slapping. You know, it, it, it is schmaltzy and sickening. Isn't it? And yeah, it's but I quite enjoy all that. You can't beat what, watching some actress blub her eyes out when she's won an award, though. It's just and everyone thanking everyone, including God oh, and no. everyone they've ever met. It's brilliant. It's <laughs> tedious, noxious, nauseating. I gave up on it. I, just after Gladiator won... <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't be bothered with it ever again. In fact, they only made an effort to watch that because of Gladiator being there. Uh, but no, I I, I no, enjoyed the year when sycophantic, you know. <laughs> I I got no faith in it whatsoever. Yeah, it's I, about I as uh, yeah, I think convincing as uh, you know the X Factor. You know, it's it's now done for all the wrong reasons. I think. I honestly, I have no interest whatsoever in the Oscars. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, I, I stopped watching probably when Scorsese picked up one and I just it, it just turned into a bit of a farce from there. You know, I, I just don't really see the point in it. It's each year there seems to be a film that gets lauded more than everything else and it will collect several several awards that it doesn't really deserve, you know, best screenplay and, and best direction and best uh score and the like when really what they're just saying is is it's the best overall film you know and, and so i'm afraid i just really don't have much interest it's interesting you say that because i think um even though it was you know british film and, and all the rest it's slumdog millionaire the year that that seemed to win everything i just didn't get that i mean yeah it was a good film and and danny Boyle is a good filmmaker but did it really deserve all that praise did it really deserve all those awards well, see i always speech last year i mean that was a tv movie from from what i saw when i watched it i thought that's no way is that a big oscar winning one like best actor best director best screenplay best film come on so the best they could do i mean social network was better than that they just get behind a certain movie and you know obviously somebody owes someone some favors and bingo that's touted by everybody as being you know the best you know that's no 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 so, so there's the grey. Put the grey in there. <laughs> so there's an Oscar chair as well as a uh, an agent's chair. Is that what you're saying, Chris? I think so, and they're very close together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, we've sadly run out of time on the movies podcast this evening. Uh, we have covered 
quite a bit in there. If you like to see the reviews, again, head over avforums.com forward slash movies to read all the latest reviews up there from the guys. And we'll be back again next month on the 7th of March. So join us for that. And don't forget the other podcasts which are coming out in February. On the 14th, we have the Games Podcast uh, with Mark and the guys talking games. On the 21st, we have the Home Cinema Podcast. And on the 28th, uh, of February we have the podcast extra so all I need to do now is thank the guys for the time this evening thank you cheers Phil it's been a pleasure and this is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon watch out for the wolves <laughs> the AV podcast was presented by Phil Hinton original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove the AV podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV podcast is copyright M2M Limited.